Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, a wild hike through the history and migration of the folk culture, stories, traditions, and haints hidden in the hills and hollers of Appalachia. I'm your host, Aaron Bobbitt. Hey folks, welcome to this month's episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, and Happy New Year. I got a pretty hefty housekeeping section I want to start off this episode with this month. As is often the case, December was chaos for me and for a lot of my friends and family. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get this episode out on time. I didn't even really know what I was going to record this month. I thought, well, let's look at maybe Appalachian folk practices around the new year, things that would ensure you know, healthy, happy relationships, individuals' health, prosperity, money, good crops, things of that sort. But I have been doing a lot of that lately and thought, yeah, I'll wait until next year to do something like that. Then I thought about going into a little bit of my family history, a very tentative connection to Northern Appalachia and Pennsylvania through a book that I found and read that had a few chapters in it from the late 19th century. Then I thought, that's going to be a lot of reading and a lot of research that I don't necessarily have the time for. You know, I love to do research and I love to make sure that I get my facts as accurate as possible. So that just wasn't going to be a viable option. Then I thought I would tell about my experience at Brown Mountain when my wonderful uh, lover and confidant, my girlfriend, got us a beautiful weekend stay at a B&B in West Jefferson, North Carolina but it ended up that we spent time at a local winery instead and didn't want to make the mountain drive at night to Brown Mountain to see the lights and then drive back home to the B&B. Probably not smart, definitely dangerous. But then I thought about the other wonderful thing she did for me this month. There is a series, or there was a series, at the North Carolina History Museum in Raleigh called Southern Songbirds. And it was about women in folk music in the South and in Appalachia. There were a couple of lectures or performances that we wanted to go to, but our schedules didn't line up. But we were lucky enough, or actually she was lucky enough, to get tickets to the very last performance of the series. It was actually a documentary, and she kind of kept it a secret from me. Of course, she had to tell me where we were going, and she had to show me the tickets uh, day of. But that ended up being the topic I went with for this month's episode. And I, I mean, long story short, it was a documentary, a Q&A with the musician and the documentarian, and then a performance. I thought it was just going to be a documentary of someone whose name I think I may have recognized, but whose music I wasn't really familiar with, didn't know anything about her and very, very quickly became obsessed with learning as much as I possibly could and thought it would make a wonderful episode to share with you this month. I listen to a lot of old-timey bluegrass music, a lot of folk music from Appalachia, obviously, and I remember seeing the name Alice Gerard pop up in Spotify playlists. It was things, you know, I'd just be listening at work or listening at home while I'm cleaning, and I'd hear a song, hear a voice, and I'd figure out who it was, hit the like button, and add it to my favorites. And Alice came up every now and again, and so did the famous duo Alice and Hazel from the 60s and 70s. And 
didn't really think much of it. You know, this happens all the time because I love music so much. There's always music playing. I would like these songs and go on about my day. So when I sat down for this documentary for over three hours and got to hear all of Alice's music and her performance at the end and just listening to her speak, I was absolutely captivated. And for the next several days, put down her entire discography on Spotify between work and home. It was extensive. It's beautiful. And I can't recommend it enough. And hopefully by the end of this episode, I will convince you to do the same thing. I've actually included a link to her Spotify page. So if you go ahead and click that um, or just search her name, Alice Gerard, G-E-R-R-A-R-D, you will find all of her music with her various groups, especially Alice and Hazel on Spotify or wherever you get your music. So let's get into Alice Gerard and her contribution to the world of old-timey and bluegrass music. I'd like to go ahead and list my references so y'all know where I got my information from. They're all interviews or documentaries, so the facts are all the same. It's just how she tells them to that particular interviewer. The first one, of course, is the documentary I saw. It is You Gave Me a Song, a film about Alice Gerard from 2019 by documentarian Kenny Dalsheimer. I have a link to the download of that documentary in the show notes, should you want to go ahead and stream that, and please, please, please do. I bought a hard copy of it, plus liner notes and two CDs for 20 bucks, and it was well worth it. I'll also be referencing the podcast Toy Heart with host Tom Powers, who interviews Alice Gerard on April 2nd, 2020. There's a New York Times article as well, Alice Gerard didn't plan a bluegrass career, she broke its glass ceiling, by Grayson Haver Curran from October 13th, 2022. And the final reference is an interview from the podcast Bluegrass Unlimited. All of this will be in the show notes, so if you want to do some further research, I encourage you to do so. Please go ahead and check those. Alice Gerard was born in Seattle, Washington on July 8th, 1934. Her family then moved to the Bay Area, south of Oakland, and all of that area, she says, was farmland at the time. The Bay Area, for those of you not in the States, is San Francisco Bay. So, I mean, it's a booming metropolis now, but she said at the time it was sugar beet farms and cattle ranches. She grew up with a family full of musicians. Her mother studied music at Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington, and her father, who was from England, which will come up later, directed church choirs and taught at UC Berkeley. Her mother's sisters were also musicians, and they had a little group called the Symphony Sisters where they would sing traditional hymns and ballads. Alice says at that point that social music was a part of her daily life, the singing at home and the playing of music, but she never wanted to be a musician. She was just an observer. She just loved to listen and watch. Her father died when she was very young, and her mother moved the family to Mexico. She doesn't talk too much about this in the documentary other than the family moved there, but what was amazing to see were the pictures. And you can see this little seven, eight, nine-year-old Alice Gerard. She looks ornery. She is a firecracker, a pistol, absolutely. She mentions it that uh, her mother told her, If there were more points in the good Alice column than the bad Alice column, when they got back from Mexico, she would buy Alice a pony. So when they were done living in Mexico, they moved to Irvington, California, where 
the family rented a farm, and that's where Alice got her pony, so obviously she was a good girl during their time in Mexico. As she grew up, her mother would take the kids out of school one day a week for dance lessons in foreign films. Obviously, very progressive family for the time. Also in high school, she spent a year with a family in Europe, where she, Alice, hitchhiked with her brother all over the place. She ended up falling in love with a boy named Pierre, like we all have. Don't lie, we've all done it. They don't really go into it, but there was a tryst, nothing really happened, and she came back from her trip in Europe to attend Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Now, this is my neck of the woods, Ohio. Antioch College was definitely the liberal arts college growing up. I didn't go there. I went to a different liberal arts college in Ohio. But Antioch was definitely where you went for music, theater, performance, art, that kind of stuff. And it was no different when Alice was there. She said that this was her first experience with the folk music culture, which she said there were beards, long hair, and bare feet everywhere. And it was early in her formative days here at Antioch College that she was given Harry Smith's 1958 Anthology of American Folk Music by her then-friend Jeremy Foster. It was here Alice was introduced to the American female folk singer Texas Gladden, who she fell in love with and would go on to emulate her vocal style. Texas was an American female folk singer who started recording in 1930. She and her brother were recorded by famous folklorist and musicologist Alan Lomax in 1941. Alice gives her reason for falling in love with her voice as it being a very keening, lonesome tone and voice. And host Tom Power of the Toy Heart podcast describes her voice as having a rough, not always perfect, honest sound. And if you listen to Texas Gladden and listen to Alice Gerard, they are almost, you can definitely tell how much Texas influenced Alice. It's that rough honesty and truth in the sound of her voice. It was also at this time that Alice was teaching herself how to play guitar and banjo. Her friend at the time, John Cohen, who was in the documentary, said that they were the anti-folk music revival and that they just played music they all loved. For those of you who aren't familiar with what the folk music revival of the 50s and 60s was, for example, things taking you know, Woody Guthrie and Arlo Guthrie and moving on through Bob Dylan and into early Grateful Dead. It was taking these old traditional folk songs from Appalachia, from the South, a lot of blues, a lot of old-timey music, fiddle music, and bringing it into a modern audience and turning it into a little bit more rock and roll but keeping uh, the original tone of the music. So while they were playing the music they loved, Alice happened to be one of the only women to play a Scruggs-style picking on a five-string banjo, which was not something very common back in that time. So for those of y'all who don't know what that is, and I didn't either, I'm going to go ahead and uh, quote Wikipedia here. Scruggs-style banjo is played with picks on the thumb, index, and middle fingers. The pinky and or ring fingers are typically braced against the head or top of the instrument. The strings are picked rapidly in repetitive sequences or rolls. The same string is not typically picked twice in succession. Melody notes are interspersed among arpeggios, and musical phrases typically contain long series of staccato notes, often played at very rapid tempos. 
the music is generally syncopated and may have a subtle swing or shuffle feel, especially on mid-tempo numbers. The result is lively, rapid music, which lends itself both as an accompaniment to other instruments and as a solo. The fact that Alice was the only woman doing this at the time in this college community made her a very hot commodity for other local folk groups, and she definitely pulled, got pulled into a lot of folk groups. What was different about that was women did not front bluegrass and old-timey groups. They were often in the back as accompanists, and as she goes on to later say in the documentary, they were, you know, maybe the guitar player couldn't make it that night, so hey, your sister plays guitar? Have them come on in and pick up for us while so-and-so is, is sick at home. But the difference about Alice was she was always in the front. Jeremy Foster, Alice's aforementioned friend, soon became her boyfriend, and they ended up dropping out of college together. He was going to flunk out and decided it would be better for him to drop out, and she did the same thing. Now, I did a little digging here because in one of her interviews, she mentions that Jeremy's grandfather was a Nobel Prize winning physicist. His name was Albert A. Michelson. To quote Wikipedia again, he was a Polish-American physicist of Jewish religion, known for his work on measuring the speed of light and especially for the michelson moray experiment. That is an attempt to detect the existence of the luminiferous aether, a supposed medium permitting space that was thought to be the carrier of light waves. I don't know what that is. That doesn't really matter. But in 1907, he received the Nobel Prize in Physics, becoming the first American to win the Nobel Prize in a science. He was the founder and the first head of the physics department of Case School of Applied Science, now Case Western Reserve University, and the University of Chicago. So Jeremy's grandfather was no schmuck, and a lot of pressure was put on him by his family to do well in college. He was going for a major in physics. That got me thinking, like, obviously he's very math-brained, which makes sense as to why he was so absorbed in the music culture, playing music and wanting to learn everything about this type of music. It's very much math-based. It's just math and sound instead of math and movement, which is what physics is. So Alice dropped out too. She was majoring in sociology, German, and lit. And she goes on to say that she was not very interested in school at all, and that's why she went ahead and dropped out. Well, at that time, if you dropped out and you were a male, you were drafted in the army. Jeremy and Alice, they moved out of Ohio, and they moved to several places during his basic training and time in the military. They ended up landing in the D.C. area just outside of Baltimore. By this time, they were married and had their first child in 1957. Alice says in the You Gave Me a Song documentary that at this time, D.C. was a hotbed for country music, folk music, and bluegrass. There were country music parks all over the place. The ones that she frequented were New River Ranch and Sunset Park. Apparently, there's a documentary about Sunset Park. I haven't been able to find it, but if anybody does, please let me know where you found it. At these country music parks, for a dollar every Sunday, you could spend the day there, have a picnic, and listen to local folk music. People like Bill Monroe and the Stanley Brothers would frequent these parks, especially Sunset Park. And she, she goes on to tell this really good story in the documentary about the Stanley Brothers. For those of you who don't know the Stanley Brothers, Ralph Stanley seems to be the more 
famous of the two, Dr. Ralph Stanley. If you've ever seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? He's the voice during the KKK scene of the, the guy at the head of the thing singing Oh Death. Be clear, Ralph Stanley's not a KKK white supremacist, but he sings the song Oh Death that's on the album. Very famous folk song from this region. And his voice, it's, I'm not, I can't even hear it right now, but it's sending shivers down my spine just thinking about it. But she tells the story of the Stanley brothers. You know, they were just starting out as young musicians and they would play the Grand Ole Opry and then drive to Sunset Park to play on Sunday afternoons. And they would roll in their, roll up with their car and have the windows up because they didn't want people to think they were poor and couldn't afford a car with AC. They couldn't. So it was all about appearances. So it would be a blistering, hot day, summer in D.C., and here come the Stanley brothers with their windows up trying to look richer than they were. It was at this point in time that Alice was introduced to Hazel Dickens. Jeremy, her husband, would say that you you got to meet this, this skinny girl with a great big voice. It's in every interview with Alice that this is what Jeremy said about Hazel. you you got to meet her. She's a skinny girl or a tiny girl or a little girl with this great big voice. Hazel Dickens was born in Montcalm, Mercer County, West Virginia on June 1st, 1925. She was the eighth of 11 siblings in a mining family of six boys and five girls. Many of Hazel's relatives were miners. This is a very influential force for her music later on. She was a singer-songwriter, double bassist, and guitarist. Cultural blogger John Pietro noted that Dickens didn't just sing the anthems of labor. She lived them and her place on many a picket line, staring down gunfire and goon squads, embedded her into the cause. She moved to the Baltimore area in the 1950s where she met Mike Seeger. Mike Seeger was the high school best friend of Alice's husband, Jeremy. Alice eventually did meet that little girl with the great big voice through Mike and Jeremy, and that's where the duo of Hazel and Alice started. In a few of the interviews, Alice notes that she definitely knew that she was learning from Hazel. She doesn't explicitly say this, but I got the feeling that what she meant by that she was learning from Hazel was that Alice was involved in this traditional type of music, this genre of music, from Hazel's neck of the woods. This was Hazel's music. And Alice had not been involved in the mine. She had not been involved with strikes and labor unions. She was just playing the music. Hazel lived it. Her family was directly involved. I don't believe... Alice ever had imposter syndrome, but she was saying that she was learning about where this music came from, where the power of these words came from through Hazel. The difference between Alice and Hazel was that Alice was always in the front through college. She was always, like I said, in the front of the group singing, writing songs, and playing. Hazel was never allowed to do that. She was always the one in groups before Hazel and Alice to be the one you would pick up the part in the back. You know, like I said, so-and-so sick, come and play guitar for us because you can play. And it wasn't until she met Alice that she actually started to develop confident, independent voice, even though she was in a duo. Who's That Knockin' in other bluegrass country music released in 1965 was Alice and Hazel's first album recorded together. This was unfortunately hot on the heels of a very tragic event in Alice's life 
the untimely death of her husband, Jeremy, in 1964. He was involved in a tragic car accident, and in the documentary they talk about her experience with that at that point in time. I won't get into it here. From that, she got a big settlement, and it was enough, she says, to buy a house for her and her four kids. Her friend Joan Shagan lived in the basement of that house at the time. Joan was a family friend. She was interviewed in the documentary, was involved in the country music scene, bluegrass scene in the D.C. Baltimore area. And because Alice had just had this album released and was about to tour, or was touring, actually, going to all these different places, Joan lived with the four kids and took care of them as a a live-in nanny to be able to provide that support for Alice when she needed it. It was also at this time during her touring on this album that she played the Newport Music Festival. This came up in an interview, and I thought it was fantastic. I had to throw it in here. This young mandolin player would just kind of pop in and play at the Newport Music Festival, a gentleman named David Grisman. For those of you who don't know David Grisman, he ended up being Jerry Garcia's best friend. There's a documentary called Grateful Dog that goes into the relationship between those two. He's a fantastic mandolin player. He was involved with Old and in the Way, which was Jerry Garcia, David Grisman's friends on the pizza tapes. It's just them messing around, eating pizza, playing folk and bluegrass music. Wonderful music, wonderful documentary. He's a big name in the scene, and she's just here at Newport, and this guy comes over, and he's like, hey, I'm David, play mandolin, do 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 It's like, seriously, you're just playing with this guy named David Grisman. Anyway, just being a fan. As Hazel and Alice are recording more and releasing more albums, they begin doing tours of the South and mining towns. It was at this time Alice was very involved with reading literature that explained the trials and tribulations of the impoverished worker, mine workers, field workers, and especially African Americans. The Southern Folk Revival Tour had a mix of white and black musicians. They were all very close. They were all wonderful. Some of them were interviewed in the documentary or Descendants of. And while Alice was having a wonderful time learning about all of this culture and history, Hazel was absolutely terrified during this Southern Folk Revival Tour. Alice says that Hazel thought that they would get disappeared at any moment because they were mixed-race touring artists in a bus together. However, that experience gave Hazel permission to give voice to what she was thinking. So remember I said she grew up in a mining family from West Virginia and was always kind of pushed to the back? According to Alice, Hazel always had these very powerful thoughts, and it was through the duo of Alice and Hazel, or Hazel and Alice, that they were able, her thoughts were able to come to the forefront. This Southern Folk Revival Tour gave her even more strength to start speaking out about the treatment of coal miners in Appalachia and that permission to write these songs. As Alice is becoming more political through her reading and research, she writes the song Beaufort County Jail. It's a song about the Joanne Little trial. She was a 20-year-old black woman raped by her jailer. She killed him with an ice pick in self-defense and was ultimately acquitted. The refrain in the song is black woman in a white man's jail that Alice repeats over and over again. 
to drive the point home. Ken Radford didn't want to put this song on the next album. Now, I tried to find who Ken Radford was, and all I could find was that he was Hazel's boyfriend at the time. I don't know if he was a musician in the group or a record producer with the label that they were recording with. Could not find that. If anybody finds it, please let me know. Needless to say, Hazel, because of her boyfriend, didn't say anything to defend Alice. This was in 1976, and this was when Alice called it quits with the Alice and Hazel duo. She felt she didn't get the support from her female best friend, her sister in music, and so she decided to call it quits. In the mid to late 70s, when all this was going on, Alice was married to Jeremy's high school best friend, Mike Seeger. In a recording in the documentary, Mike says that Jeremy told him that if anything should happen to him, Mike should look after Alice. And she says in an interview that he asked her to marry him, and she was like, "Eh, uh, uh, okay, and they got married. In 1981, Alice found out that Mike had been having an affair, and she divorced him. She then moved to Galax, Virginia in 1981, which is the home of the Galax Fiddlers Convention. She did this in order to be closer to the old-timers, she says. While she was there, she met Luther Davis. He was a 92-year-old fiddle player. She spent her time with him, attempting to preserve his music and performing style. She has photographs, recordings, and learned how to play the fiddle in his style herself. She says in the documentary that Luther knew his music would live beyond him, which is interesting, I thought, because most old-timers don't feel that way. They always say that, you know, this craft, this art is going to die with me. These stories, if no one tells them, are just going to disappear. In 1983... Alice threw a big party at her little shack in Galax to bring all the local musicians together. She says that at that time they'd heard of one another, but they'd never met. So-and-so the fiddle player, oh yeah, I've heard about him, he plays really well. Oh, and -and so-and-so the guitar player, oh yeah, Slide Steel, yeah, I've heard of these folks, yeah, yeah, I've never met them. She brought them all together in 1983 at her house. Some of these people had heard of each other for 50 years, she says, but they'd never met. And so to bring this community closer together, which was her M.O. all along, and to preserve this genre, this way of life, this musical performance, she created the magazine The Old Time Herald in 1987, which is still around today. I'm going to pull their description of the magazine from their website so y'all get a really good idea of what it's all about. The Old Time Herald celebrates old-time music, grassroots or homegrown music, and dance. Our magazine casts a wide net, highlighting southeastern traditions while opening its pages to kindred and comparable traditions and new directions. She published the first edition of the Old Time Herald six months after she thought about making it. She wanted to get it out for the Fiddler's Convention that year because she knew that if she could get this information into the hands of the people who wanted it, who needed it, and who loved it, it would take off like wildfire. And it did. She got her inspiration for doing this magazine from a magazine she'd worked on earlier, a magazine called Bluegrass Unlimited, which is also still around. It was founded in 1966, and a link to the Bluegrass Unlimited podcast, where they interview Alice Gerard, is in the show notes. Needless to say, the Old Time Herald did very well, 
and Alice found the need to move to Durham, she said, because she needed technology, and they didn't have it in this little shack in the middle of nowhere, Galax. So she moves to Durham in 1987. This is a bit of a whirlwind towards the end of the documentary here with all the things that she's been doing. So I apologize if we're jumping a few decades or so. You can get the documentary and, and look at exactly what she was doing at this time, but it does move rather quickly, and I'll just hit the highlights. So in 1995, she reunites with Hazel for a performance at the Ralph Rinsler Memorial Celebration in Highlander, Newmarket, Tennessee. Hazel Dickens passed away on April 22nd, 2011, and that was a very heart-wrenching scene in the documentary. Alice and Hazel were inducted into the International Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame in Raleigh, North Carolina in 2017. Alice received a Grammy nomination for her record Follow the Music, produced by Mike Taylor of His Golden Messenger. Not familiar with the band, but maybe some of you are. In 2022, Rhiannon Giddens, who I am familiar with, used Alice's song They're Calling Me Home as the title track for her new album. Rhiannon Giddens, I'd listened to a lot of her music in interviews. She's a wonderful person, and maybe one day I'll be lucky enough to get her to come on here and tell you all about the history of the banjo. She's local to my area. I could try to reach out. I mean, there's no harm in asking where she can say is no, but I would love to have her on here. Apparently she can talk about the banjo forever, and maybe if I'm lucky enough, she'll come on here and tell you all about it. So what you see throughout the documentary is Alice's pictures and movies and tape recordings of everything that was going on throughout her entire life. She recorded everything and took all of her notes and scribbles for lyrics and whatnot. And what you see throughout the documentary is her attempting to digitize these things. She is contributing them to the Southern Folklife Collection at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. These photographs are being compiled into a book that is kind of a photobiography of her life and of that genre of music at that time. She currently has a GoFundMe. I'll have that link in the show notes as well. She's got about $11,000 of the $33,000 she's trying to raise, and I do want to read from her GoFundMe to tell you exactly what that's about. Alice is recording a new album of original songs. The anti-establishment themes that arise in these latest works will be of no surprise to anyone who is familiar with Alice's work. Her knack for writing a protest song is commensurate with her lived experience fighting against injustice. In addition to the album, Alice is collaborating with Durham Arts organizer Heather Cook and folklorist Sarah Bryan to complete a memoir based around Alice's photographs. In 2009, Alice was a Lehman Brady visiting joint chair professor at Duke's Center for Documentary Studies and began digitizing her 35mm black and white photos. Thousands of images directly from Alice's vantage point tell an incredible tale on their own of playing music and parenting in the rural South. Add to that the stories that Alice tells from these captured moments, including extensive documentation from her time on the road with legendary artists such as Elizabeth Cotton, Ola Bell Reed, Johnny Shines, Sparky Rucker, Doc Boggs, and creating a memoir around them becomes imperative. So that's my 30-minute episode, roughly, on Alice Gerard. I hope it does her some justice and that y'all are inspired to look into her music, stream the documentary, and maybe listen to some of the interview podcasts I have listed in the show notes. As I like to tell people, 
there's power in the simplicity of this style of music. If you think about it, these people didn't go to school to learn how to play these instruments. Maybe some of them did, but most of them did not. They learned from their relatives, from their friends, from their neighbors. In Alice's case, she taught herself to play all of the instruments by watching people who were 70, 80, 90 years old and had been doing this for longer than Alice had been alive. So when you take all of that into consideration and tie it up with a nice bow of struggle, strife, fortitude, and fire in the belly of Alice Gerard and Hazel Dickens and all the other people that were involved in the tours and the music, there is that power in music that seems rather simple when you listen to it initially. Before I go, I'm going to do my usual folk remedy at the end of the episode here. Something quick and fun. Looking like this episode might be pushing 35-40 minutes in the final edit, so thinking it should probably be short this time. It is no secret to any of my friends and family or anyone who follows me on Instagram, I love to fish. Unfortunately, fishing right now isn't really something that can happen. We just had a huge cold front come through, not normal for this part of the state, where the lows got down to 11 degrees Fahrenheit at night, with 25 mile an hour wind gusts that dropped it down to like negative 4. So we're just now getting out of that. I think it was about 50 degrees today, but still, not great weather to go fishing. But anyway, from Down Home Ways by Jerry Mac Johnson, a simple smoker for fish. Here is an easy way to make a cheap fish smoker. Take a good-sized, firm cardboard carton and tape or tie the flaps so that the box can be set upright on them. Pierce the carton six inches below the other end with a metal coat hanger or skewers to form a level grill work. Add a little brown sugar to a brine solution so salty as to float a potato. Steep any fish or solid meat in this solution for a minimum of four hours, overnight being preferable. Take out the fish, pat it with paper towels, and let dry completely in the air. When dry, it will exhibit a slight glaze. Build a small charcoal fire. When the coals become white, add hardwood chips. Hickory or apple impart a distinctive flavor. Lay the brined fish on the grill. Set the box on its flap legs over the smoldering chips. Close the flaps on top and weight them shut with a rock. Fish about two inches thick will need to smoke approximately four hours. Less time is required for thinner pieces. The wood chips should be hindered from flaring up by the lack of oxygen in the closed box. However, if the lower portion of the cardboard becomes hot to the touch, sprinkle them with water as a precautionary measure. If the lower edges of the box ignite, quickly douse them with water. Maybe I'll try that come spring and let you know how it turns out. Maybe that'll be the first video on my YouTube page. Who knows? In closing, as always, I'd love to thank y'all for reaching out to me, for all the wonderful feedback I've been getting over the past several months, especially in December. Because like I said, it was very stressful and to hear y'all say things about the stories I told on the Stories from the Cabin segments, getting that positive feedback really made me happy. I'd also like to give special thanks to the Uncanny community on Twitter. Y'all have been wonderful. I love every single one of you. You've really, really helped me through this December and all the pain of having to get shit ready for the holidays. I'd also like to thank the Discord group, the League of Podcasters, for the office party we got to have before Christmas. That was fun. That went on way longer than I thought, but it was great to get to 
talk to you face-to-face, digital face-to-face over Zoom, and not just through texts and tweets. That's it for this month's episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, all my contact info is in the closing segment. Do please reach out to me. I have had some very wonderful people reach out to me on Twitter that have inspired me to look into certain things for future episodes, possible interviews being some of those things. So y'all have an excellent January. I'll have an episode of Stories from the Cabin on the 15th, and I'll see you on Appalachian Folklore Podcast come February 1st. Y'all be good. Thanks for spending your time with me here at the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. If you'd be so kind as to like, review, and subscribe to this show on whichever platform you use, I'd greatly appreciate it as it helps spread the word. And after all, isn't that what folklore is about? You can find the Appalachian Folklore Podcast on social media at Pod. You can also email me with questions, comments, corrections, stories, recipes, etc. at appfolklorepod at gmail.com. And you can visit my website, shows.acast.com slash AFP. Thanks to Jonathan Ochoa for the Appalachian Folklore Podcast cover art. The intro music is Stillness by Riviel. The outro music is I Can See the Sky by All Sever Lake. You can find all citations to the references mentioned in this episode in the show notes. Thanks again for listening.